Hi, good evening, and welcome to another episode of the JPPI, Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis and Look at Israel's War Against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Tonight, we have quite the lineup, and I think a very interesting cast to discuss the different issues about this war. I first have an interview that I did with the First Lady of Israel, President Isaac Herzog's wife, Michal Herzog. She's been playing a very public and front role on the conflict with a lot of compassion, I would say. She wrote a piece in Newsweek about the allegations that have been completely dismissed about sexual crimes against the Israeli, against Israeli women on October 7th, calling out international institutions. She's been on CNN and on Fox and really traveling across the country, trying to just show sympathy and solidarity, as you would expect from leaders at a time like this. So uh, very excited to have her on the show with us. And then we have a great panel with uh, our very own Dr. Uh, Nurit Cohen. Nurit is a fellow at JPPI. She is the author of a book on Jewish refugees in the War of Independence, which has actually won the Yitzhak Sadeh Military Literature Prize. I'm familiar with the prize because I submitted, I think, two of my books to it in the past that were also about military literature, but we did not. I did not win. So I'll uh, vote to Nurit for winning that prize. And uh, Nurit also works at the Yitzhak Rabin Center, where she is the vice president for content. And we also have the JPPI senior fellow, Professor Gil Troy, historian and also writer with us. So we have a lot to talk about, a lot to get into. But first, here is our interview with Israel's first lady, Michal Herzog. Mrs. Herzog, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Yaakov. Thank you very much. So... You know, I've been following what you've been doing, obviously, since the beginning of this uh, war and the tragedy of October 7th. And I've noticed how you're wearing the dog tags for the hostages. And I've mm -hmm. seen that you you and your husband, the president, have been meeting regularly with hostage families, as well as the evacuees, the people, the mifunim, the people who have been had to leave their homes in the south as well as in the north. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing these are not easy meetings at all. Very emotional. People are complaining, criticizing. How are you managing this? Not easy is the understatement of the year. Um, these have been the most difficult conversation we've had in our lives. Um, you know, meeting with the families of the hostages has been very difficult, has been really, really difficult and very emotional. Because now, when we're speaking now, is very different than in the first week when we met them, because now there's more hope. They've seen people come back. They're hopeful on the one hand. They're scared on the other hand. Um, but at first, we were all in the unknown. We were really all in the unknown. And you have to give, you had to give them hope, motivation, um, how to react. Um, should they speak? Shouldn't they speak? Um, but the most difficult feeling is that of being abandoned. Um, and that's the main feeling that we encounter when meeting with the families of the displaced families um, from the south. And I must say also from the north of Israel, you know, sometimes we tend to forget that we have a northern frontier as well. And we have many, many displaced families and entire communities from the north as well. And uh, you have to give them hope. 
You have to give them hope. You even have to give them tips sometimes, you know, keep yourself busy, go on doing things that you like, even if they seem not the right thing for the moment. No, they are right. If it's good for you, you should keep doing it. And it's been difficult, but you also encounter a beautiful Israel, beautiful people, um, solidarity among them, um, communities that understand that they have to rise up and get back to life. And uh, it's also been very inspiring meeting them. You know, you, you mentioned the, obviously there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of lack of faith and trust also between people who have suffered in their state. Uh, you and your husband represent your symbols of our state. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to have to do as a country, I think, all, all together, and you see this beautiful unity right now, but when the day after comes, whenever that might be, we have to rebuild trust. We have to have people who can trust their country and know, trust their government, trust their state. H how do we go about doing that? So first of all, I think we're already in the process. You know, we've been now for two months in this horrible situation. And I've already, you can see the change. You can see the involvement. The first meetings were all about, we were left on our own. And the, the most tragic statements were about not having faith in the army. Because that, that was always the symbol, the one body we always, always agreed about. We yeah. always loved, we always trusted. And all of a sudden they weren't there in that critical moment you needed them. But I think that has been building up again. Uh, first of all, you have almost in every family, you have someone in the army serving currently or on reserve duty. Uh, and you see that the army is working well and you see it coming back to its uh, strength. So I think that already adds to believing again, in, at least in that institute. Um, also the reaction of the government ministries. There were some ministries that responded immediately. There were others that took the time, but you can see, as we say, the awakening of the services giving to the people. So I think trust is building up again slowly, um, not with every community, not every single person, but you can see it building up again. And I think the people are gaining trust again in the services of the state, in the bodies that give them these services, for instance, social security. Okay, right. we always tend to say, social security, oh, there's so many problems. No, they were actually one of the first institutions to show up in every single hotel that was, uh, that to which the displaced um, communities came. And we can see in every meeting, in every visit to those hotels, we could see the first thing they said, oh, Social Security already came and told us what our rights are. Mm -hmm. So you can understand that it's building up, you know, so I wouldn't put everything down as mistrust. I think it's rebuilding again. 
I want to talk to you about your recent op-ed in Newsweek. Uh, the, the title was The Silence from International Bodies Over Hamas's Mass Rapes is a Betrayal of All Women. And, you know, I, I was thinking about, I read the piece and I thought it was it was, it was very important and, and very well written. But this whole idea that's going on, it's crazy to, you know, I look at it, that women's groups, the UN women, others refuse to condemn and recognize the sex crimes, including violent rape. All rape is violence, but I mean, some of the stories that we hear of what happened there go beyond the imagination, all committed by Hamas. What is it, do you think, Mrs. Herzog, that these people refuse to just recognize and 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 show that sympathy and, and condemn a terrorist group for what it's done? Well, first of all, um, there's a change occurring in that, so we can see that that pressure applied by various groups and 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 the professionals in that field is working. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I think in the beginning it took people time to actually grasp the severity, the um, the the depth of the uh, gender-based violence that occurred. On October 7th. It took me a few days to understand. It was first really under the radar because it's such a personal, uh, private, um, terrible attack that, you know, people do not want to actually go into it or go into graphic details. But then once, especially women in Israel and first responders especially came with the stories and some were on camera and um, others were witnesses that saw gang rape or things like that at the Nova Musical Festival. As witnesses came up, as uh, people started to talk about it, also women organizations were approached and human rights organizations around the world. There were complete silence and really the, the, the refusal to condemn were felt, as I said, like a betrayal. Why did it happen? You know, it's easy to say anti-Semitism. I don't know if that's the answer. I really don't know. But definitely it's blindness of human rights organizations and international women's rights organizations, organizations like UN Women that were created in the first place. What was right. the purpose? Their purpose was exactly to condemn and to prevent such horrible gender-based um, assaults, especially during conflicts. And uh, as I said, there's a change. First time, a few days ago that UN women actually had an outright condemnation. They actually managed to have in the same phrase, condemnation, Hamas against Israel on October 7th. They actually put it all together. They knew how to put that together into a sentence. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. It, took them, it took them eight weeks, but right. it happened. Okay. There, uh, there are events in the UN this week taking place. Uh, where Israeli professionals that have been all their life on the forefront of fighting for women rights and human uh, and and uh, and human rights um, and organizations 
they're going to show up at the UN. And I do hope that after this condemnation, investigations are actually going to be held, but we have to apply pressure. And as I said, when pressure is applied from all over, it really works. And we have to continue that. Yeah. Uh, You know, before becoming Israel's first lady, you worked at Jewish foundations in Israel. um, Mm -hmm. And you and the president have really been for a long time, definitely since taking office, but even before President Herzog was the chairman of the Jewish agency. So Israel diaspora ties have really been in in both of your DNA for for, for many, many years. And I I think when I look at at this moment in history and this conflict, obviously, us Israelis are on the front lines and our children and everyone who's fighting and our our family. But the the, the global Jewish community is really at a juncture, I think, uh, for the future of what's going to happen. We First of all, we're all connected. We see that Jews who maybe thought that they could run away from being Jewish, no matter where they are in the world, what happens in Israel impacts them with the explosion of anti-Semitism. But we also see this beautiful manifestation of how we're all standing together and this how we've come together and helping out one another. I'm curious from from your vantage point, how do you think we can channel this energy in a way that even when this war is over, please God, we can continue to strengthen these ties that we have between diaspora and Israel? So first of all, as you said, um, the show of solidarity, the togetherness coming together, the Jewish diaspora and Israel is really moving and touching at this very, very sad moment for our country. And we have to remember that this comes after a few very difficult months, very, very difficult months, which created a lot of discussions in Jewish communities around the world. I'm talking about the internal Israeli strife around the judicial uh, reform. And, And that was very difficult for the Jewish communities. We spoke to many of them. We um, we had them come and visit Israel. We had delegations here, and these were very difficult times. So, what happened on October seventh turned everything around, both in Israel internally, solidarity and the togetherness, and hopefully it will stay on. But it also, as you said, brought everyone together. This is a chance to understand and also to teach the younger generation which doesn't, wasn't always connected to this country. You can now see parents saying, our kids in college now understand because they're all of a sudden confronted right. with horrible antisemitism. Maybe this is also a chance to bring them, to connect them, to bring them more to Israel, to, to show the strength of all of us here together when we are together, diaspora in Israel. I want to ask you just to wrap up all the travels across the country and you and the president, I see one day you're up north, one day you're down south, one day you're here going around and, and giving hugs and, and and just showing compassion and solidarity. Uh, what gives you hope at this very difficult time for the future of the country? Oh, there are many things that give me hope. Um, first of all, we have a beautiful country and beautiful people. Um, and it's beautiful to see them all together. All of a sudden, as I mentioned before, the internal strife turned into a lot of energies of 
responsibility for each other, of solidarity, of volunteerism, of uh, people just don't know what to do for the for you know how to help each other, and it's beautiful to see. You can see it even uh, with the families of the hostages who represent all of Israeli society, absolutely yeah. all of Israeli society. Um, and you can see their um, generosity of heart towards each other. You can see their getting together as one big family, unfortunately in these circumstances, but also their resilience, their togetherness. And also you can see families that got their dear ones back, but they were still part of that family and they won't let go until every last hostage is back. So these things and these gestures give us a lot of hope and love. And even visiting bereaved families, which unfortunately we do a lot these days, the families are wonderful. They give you strength back. And all they ask is, let's all stay together. That's what we want. Help us stay together. And I think this is hopeful. You know, in a few days we'll be celebrating Hanukkah, the Feast of Light. This year even more symbolic than other years because... We know that the light will overcome the darkness, and this all gives us hope for a better future. Well said. I want to thank you very much. Israel's First Lady, Michal Herzog, thank you so much for joining us here at JPPI. Thank you very much, and happy Hanukkah in a few days. Happy Hanukkah. That was a great interview with Israel's First Lady, Michal Herzog. Really, really interesting, and just great to get her insight into things. But now I want to shift gears for a moment. And talk about an issue that's really been, I think, at the forefront of what's been happening in since the war, but we haven't really spoken about on this uh, on the webinar until now, and that is the whole issue of Jewish or Israeli displaced people, refugees, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I remember, I think it was the president of JPPI, Professor Yedidia Stern, who who said this line to me at one point, which really resonated, that if you think about it on a, on a, on a daily basis or an evening, nightly basis, you have about half a million Israelis who are not sleeping in their beds every night. You have the about 150,000 displaced Israelis from the north and from the south who have had to flee their homes because of the war in with Hamas and Gaza or the, the clashes that are ongoing with Hezbollah in the north. Is in, and including or added to that are the 300 plus thousand reservists who... Like we all know people, and I'm sure we all have family members who are serving in the reserves. Uh, we know what that's like. They're not sleeping at home. But I want to talk for a moment about the 150,000 more or less displaced people. And Nurit, I thought I'd start with you because to me this seems, and I think you had said this even in a conversation, this is the greatest Jewish refugee crisis to an extent since post-World War II, 1948 War of Independence. I mean, this is unprecedented, really, in 75 years of Israeli history. That's true. The numbers are really uh, enormous. And uh, if we look at the plans that were made in Israel, uh, trying to prepare to a situation of war and uh, civilian evacuation, uh, we see that uh, estimations were much lower. Uh, and uh, you can say that also in this regard, we were surprised on October 7th. And the extent of the um, numbers of the of the Israeli uh, refugees, uh, they are really um, uh, very uh, substantial. 
And unfortunately, although we are uh, almost two months after the attack, uh, it seems that the Israeli uh, government, the, the various uh, ministries and the, uh, and the branches of the government are still uh, struggling, and I'm saying it very, uh, I'm, I'm understating uh, the situation, uh, is not yet uh, uh, in fully in the event, and uh, many of the, evacuate, the evacuees uh, are not receiving the basic, I would say, the basic uh, uh, answers and uh, and solutions to their uh, needs and problems. And that is something that really has to be uh, already uh, be solved and we, we should be in a different place by now. You know, the I'm sure... I know that Gil was at a uh, went to one of the hotels in Tel Aviv. I don't know if Nurith, you've been to yeah. any of the hotels you you have also, and I've been as well to visit friends and family. You know, people tend to think, "Oh no, they're in a hotel in a lot, or they're in a hotel in the Dead Sea, or in a hotel on the beach in Tel Aviv." This is not a way to live, right? No, this is, that's not. It's not a, a vacation. Uh, it's really a very stressful situation where they have no knowledge of how long they're going to be there. And that's one of the major uh, difficulties, uh, I would say, uh, the uncertainty. Uh, if uh, Many of them are saying, well, if we knew how, for how long uh, we're going to be away from home, we could be uh, having, uh, we could have made plans and we could have, right. you know, uh, take care of, of different uh, aspects of our lives. But we are stuck in a situation where we don't have really a future and we don't have, really have a home. And, uh, for example, the, 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 the tiniest uh, things are... Uh, People left their homes when it was a high summer, and now uh, winter is coming, and they need their winter clothes, and they can't go back to their homes to bring their coats and sweaters, sweatshirts. So, because uh, the the military, the the, the homes of the towns or kibbutzim, uh, military zone, right. it's a military zone. So, uh, really. They are in a very, uh, and I'm, 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 of course, I, I'm not speaking about the survivors of the attacks. That's a different kind of story and a, a different a set of uh, of uh, difficulties. But uh, even people from the north who didn't suffer any, uh, they weren't under attack, but they are away from their homes almost two months now, and they really don't have answers. No one can uh, answer them for how long this is going to take. So Gil, Nurit kind of put it as the government is struggling, uh, being very politically correct, I think. Uh, the government has failed, I mean, miserably failed, right, to uh, to provide for the people. And I mean, obviously there's a war and all governments have their sets of priorities, but part of, I would feel that part of, you you need national resilience to defeat any enemy, and part of that needs to come from the people feeling like the government is taking care of their people, and we just don't have that at the moment. I mean, how, how do you see this? Narita is being very polite because we're all trying to avoid politics and partisanship and criticizing the government, but sometimes you have to in the middle of an emergency because you have to get things done. And uh, I was shocked when I read, I think it was two weeks ago, and I don't think it's changed, that the government didn't even have a list of all the evacuees. So that's one dimension. And part of the issue when we talk about the day after is that for too long, Israeli governments have emphasized bombast over competence. 
and they've given out uh, ministries like uh, a, a, a crazed new father giving out cigars uh, after his uh, after his daughter's birth, and without understanding that you actually have to govern. And uh, I I've been trying to find the Hebrew word for good governance, the Hebrew translation for the phrase good governance. It, it doesn't exist. So one of the things when we talk about going ahead is just starting a, a new approach to governance and competence. When we talk about what's going on now, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is the chaos. The bad news is also the fact that the world has made these invisible refugees. They don't count them, right? We keep on hearing about how poor Palestinians are displaced from their homes. We don't hear about how Israelis are displaced from their homes. And we did amazing research about that in 48-2. So once again, we see the, the imbalance. But what's been our secret again and again? The people of Israel have stepped up. It has been so moving in my neighborhood to see some of the nicer apartments uh, owned by Americans who are giving it out to for free to um, people from Sterot uh, and elsewhere. Uh, on Friday, my wife and I went to the uh, newly renovated Tower of David, Migdal David, where they had a fair, where they had vendors um, from the south and from the north, evacuees, not necessarily survivors of the uh, horrible depredations, uh, and, and Jerusalem people who are also not getting uh, much business. And who did they invite? They invited people from the north. And one of the feedback that they're getting, one piece of feedback they're getting from the Tower of David, is the kids come either for this vendor fair or just to the museum, and they're stuck in apartments. They're stuck in hotel rooms. They haven't had a chance to run around. And it being Israel, you run around in the museum rather than sitting politely. And of course, the Tower of David is an amazing space. And so what we are seeing is, again, in the failure of government, Israelis are stepping in and Jews from all over the world and non-Jews with their generosity, with their vision. But it shouldn't be that way. And this is one more challenge for the government to step up and really, really change and really, really reform. Nurit, in, in your research, in the book that you wrote about Jewish refugees during the War of Independence, you know, it's interesting because I think the world and Gil just mentioned the imbalance, but the world, when it thinks of 1948 and thinks of the so-called Nakba, which is how the, the Arabs refer to the events of 1948, the establishment of Israel and the what is turned and, and blown up into millions of Palestinian refugees, right, because it's passed on from generation to generation. But everyone has really ignored around the world the existence of the Jewish refugees of 1948, right? They've ignored, you know, people know post-Holocaust, they know the Jews who survived the war and, and, and the Nazi death camps who then came to Israel, but like North African Jews, for example, or Jews who fled Arab countries, Syria uh, or, or, or Lebanon, those are con those are not even considered refugees, right? Um I think we're kind of seeing that again now, too. Everybody talks about, like Gil just mentioned, the displaced people who moved from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. Uh, mm -hmm. But no one in the world really talks about this massive displacement of Israelis in their own country. Is this do you, do you see the correlation between yeah. the two? Yeah, it, it is amazing how uh, history repeats itself sometimes. Um, most often it's a tragedy. Um, yeah, these are two different uh, events. The um, the exodus, I would say, of uh, Jews from Arab countries after the establishment of the State of Israel in uh, 1948, that's uh, one event. That's almost uh, one million Jews uh, were actually forced to leave their homes uh, in the Arab countries uh, after leaving them, uh, leaving their uh, 
sometimes uh, hundreds and thousands of years uh, from all over the world. Uh, you mentioned Syria and Lebanon. It's uh, Egypt, Libya, uh, Tunisia, uh, Morocco, and so on and so, so forth. Uh, and uh, they were forced to, to, to leave their homes uh, after uh, being treated uh, with various uh, degrees of violence and abuse. So that's one event. And my research is about uh, a Jewish refugee problem during uh, Israel's war of independence, uh, in, uh, which started at the end of uh, 1947 and ended uh, almost uh, one and a half year after, uh, uh, at the middle of uh, 1948. Uh, and we're talking about uh, a very conservative estimation of 60,000 Jewish refugees during that war, uh, people who were forced to leave their homes in the front lines and also in the three major cities uh, in the Jewish area uh, of then Palestine, um, meaning uh, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa. Some of them were evacuated under fire from uh, from from the front lines, and some of them, uh, and that was an organized evacuation, uh, and many of them, the majority, uh, fled by themselves and evacuated themselves to inner parts of their uh, cities uh, from from uh, neighborhoods that were mixed, uh, Jewish and Arab uh, population was mixed, and they fled uh, to uh, safer parts of the, of the cities. Um, and as you said, although it was a very uh, large um, phenomenon, uh, it was forgotten. It was also forgotten from the uh, collective, from the Israeli collective memory, for various reasons that we won't go into uh, right now. And of course, the world uh, overlooked this uh, um, this story. Uh, although the the, the situation. For the Palestinians and for the Jewish refugees, what was similar was identical uh, during the war. Uh, both sides didn't know how the war is going to end, uh, whether or not they will have homes to come back to, whether or not they will have communities to, to go back to. And they suffered from the same uh, difficulties in the and problems, uh, disease, uh, food, health, uh, health, uh, I said, uh, uh, you, you can imagine the set of problems that each side uh, had to deal with. The Jewish uh, side won the war and uh, could afford uh, to forget the, the story. And the Palestinians had a different... Uh, a different narrative, different experience. Yep. Right. You know, uh, Gil, I was thinking... If I go back to like the 2006 Second Lebanon War, which also you had a lot of rockets and you had fears, then a little less of, of Hezbollah infiltrations. There was no mass. The, the government was recommending that people leave the north, but it wasn't mass evacuations. There was that story at the time of Arkady Gaidamak, the Russian oligarch who uh, paid for buses and, and took people down south, I think, into, and also at the time hotels maybe. And if you've looked at even previous Gaza operations, Israel has not done forcible uh, evacuations in the past, people tend to, you know, they have their, you hear it from a lot of stories of people in the South, how they have, you know, the protocol. Oh, rockets are starting. They got the, the, the bag ready. 
they they throw some stuff in, they get ready to head to the center of the country or somewhere else to to get out of the range and let things blow over for a couple of days. Obviously, this time it was much different. But I think that this is really the first time, definitely in modern Israeli history in the last 75 years, that we see evacuation of this scale. And I and I wonder if there's not a deeper question here of the fact that Israel has to evacuate people. Like we sent people to live there. We sent people to the northern border. We sent people to the southern border. We wanted people to build kibbutzim on those front lines because through communities and residential areas, that's how you create sovereignty and that's how you spread your control over territory, right? I'm not talking about settlements in the West Bank and in the so-called occupied territories. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, or disputed territories. I'm talking about, Places inside Israel proper and inside sovereign Israel where the government sent them there now to evacuate them. What message does that send as a country that you can't protect your people and you have to evacuate them? Well, I'll see you and raise you before we get to the essence of the question. It's not only that people are being evacuated temporarily, but there are more and more people you're hearing from the kibbutzim in the south, from Sterot, from Kiryat Shmona and Metula, who are saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back. There are certain people who are saying, I'm going back no matter what. And it's been very moving to hear many people from the kibbutzim saying, we're going to go back, we're going to rebuild, we're going to create these amazing communities. But one of the war aims, and I didn't hear this when Kamala Harris was articulating war aims, but it has, one of the war aims for Israelis has to be where every single Israeli in the southern corner of, 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 the, of the Gaza Strip, in, by the Gaza Strip, and in the north, can go back and can live healthily, happily and safely. And so we're not just talking about a possible temporary evacuation. We're talking about some people are saying, I'm either too traumatized or I don't have faith in the government or I'm counting 150,000 missiles that Hezbollah has amassed and it's not good. So there's a double problem here. One is the message we, we say to our own citizens. Have we broken that core social covenant, which of course was broken on October 7th? And how quickly can we restore it where citizens know that when I am a citizen of the state of Israel, wherever I am, including the territories, wherever you stand politically, including the disputed territories, wherever I live, the state of Israel is behind me and is protecting me in the most effective way possible so that I can sleep at night and I can live the life that I want to live. That's the broken covenant internally. But you're right, externally, the notion that uh, a, a group of people who are kind of dismissed as, as, as just third-rate terrorists, both by Israelis and by much of the world community, can be threatening the, the daily life uh, of Israelis and being so disturbed for so long is clearly is, is clearly problematic. And we've got to restore not just our own Israelis' sense of livelihood and comfort, but we've also got to restore a certain balance of terror. It's not a nice phrase, but a balance of terror whereby they are afraid of disrupting us ever again. And that's one of the big challenges of this war. Uh, I want to thank both of you, Nurit Cohen and Gil Troy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Michal Herzog, who joined us earlier. And thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. We'll be back again on Thursday under the new format, Mondays and Thursdays. You can find us at the JPPI webinar. Thank you very much and have a good evening.